Radhika Jones, Editor-in-Chief of Vanity Fair. If you enjoy binge-watching the best TV shows and love hearing from the actors and showrunners who make them happen, then subscribe to Vanity Fair. Our Hollywood reporters take you behind the scenes of the year's most anticipated projects, the industry's biggest moves, and the hardest-fought awards races. From The Crown to The Real Housewives, we've got the inside scoop. As a special thank you to our still-watching audience, we're offering 15% off a yearly digital subscription to Vanity Fair. Visit VanityFair.com today and use promo code POD15. That's VanityFair.com, promo code POD15, for 15% off a yearly digital subscription to everything you want. This episode is brought to you by Progressive. Are you driving your car or doing laundry right now? Podcasts go best when they're bundled with another activity. Like Progressive home and auto policies, they're best when they're bundled too. Having these two policies together makes insurance easier and could help you save. Customers who save by switching their home and car insurance to Progressive save nearly $800 on average. Quote a home and car bundle today at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $793 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2021 and May 2022. Potential savings will vary. War is afoot. I am to inherit the Iron Throne. She will block my way. Hello, and welcome back to Still Watching, the television podcast from Vanity Fair. We cover entire seasons of the hottest shows on television, and right now we are diving deep into the hottest of them all, House of the Dragon, the Game of Thrones prequel series on HBO. I'm Josh Wiggler, and to discuss House of the Dragon, Episode 5 with me, back from his trip across the narrow sea, it's <laughs> Richard Lawson. Richard, welcome home. Hello, thank you. Yeah, I was in the very, very narrow seas of Venice, which I guess we just call canals. Mm-hmm. Yes. Uh, gosh, I have so many questions for you about Venice. I want to know if you can confirm, did he spit on him or not? Did he, did <laughs> um, well, he do it? Uh, I, I handle all of Chris Pine's wardrobe, so I inspected it heavily <laughs> afterward, and I didn't see anything, but who knows? Okay. All right. Fair enough. Fair enough. Richard, welcome back to the podcast. You have been missed, and you have missed a few big weeks of House of the Dragon here on the pod. And of course, here we are in episode five, the midpoint of season one of House of the Dragon. We light the way. Another doozy. Um, so how are you feeling at this point in House of the Dragon? Any catch-up thoughts that you want to you wanna toss out there before we're talking about episode five? I mean, I do appreciate just like I, I went back and rewatched four in it and, and, you know, and five in anticipation of recording with you. And like, you know, I had said something in my review where like, you know, characters say something and then two scenes later, um, the the consequences of that are, are seen. And I, I kind of missed the slower story building of the original Game of Thrones series. But actually rewatching five, I was like, you know what? They actually have been building toward a lot of this gradually from episode one. So I, this episode felt like a big payoff. I'm glad that I'm here for to record for this one because um a lot happens and um i feel like it's gonna change the dna of the show pretty significantly going forward in the back half yeah i think that that's a really fair assessment of where we're going and i and i think certainly a fair assessment of of where we've been and where this one um you know sort of takes us and and what it's punctuating so much of the show up to this point 
has been about Princess Rhaenyra and her duty and her claim to the throne as it was solidified at the end of, uh, of episode one. But is it solidified? And are there people out there who are going to be contesting that claim? Will she be able to repair her relationship with Alicent, for instance? This episode, by the end of it, really gives you a pretty big indication of just how far that friendship has fallen and the really, really gruesome consequences for a bunch of the players on the board as well. Not to mention, Richard, Viserys, he's on the ground. That doesn't look particularly great for the guy. But he'd been doing so well. His health seemed great. You know, he was, yeah. you know, b- b- rosy cheeked and active. And no, I mean, <laughs> God bless Pat, the actor Patty Considine, who has, I think, subtly, uh, you know, led us into Viserys's decline. And then in this episode, he just falls off a cliff, which like is sometimes how these things go. And um, yeah, I, I, I fear that we might be uh, at the end of, of him. Yeah, it's a it's a really grim look for for King Viserys. We would be, uh, I think, sad to lose Patty Considine from the from the show. But some version of really horrible things befalling this character feels inevitable, feels telegraphed to the point that very early in this episode, in one of his few scenes, I think his only scene of the episode, outgoing hand of the king, uh, Otto Hightower, even he says. That that man is not destined to be old. Uh, that <laughs> yeah. is not a place that he is going to go. So, yeah, uh, it does not look good for King Viserys by the end of this one. Which, you know, really, that there there is a tension that mounting in this season that referenced often by Hightower or Rhaenys in this episode that, like, once this succession actually starts to, to move into gear, you know, that's when things are going to get really bad. And um, now that worried about things seems basically on the verge of happening. Yeah, uh, I think there's a really telling uh, line in this episode during the during the welcome feast, uh, really, which ends up seemingly being the wedding reception. The big plans seem to have been kind of condensed to that one night, given how everything goes. But there's that dance between Rhaenyra and Laenor, uh, where she says, I'm not much of a dancer. Uh, and Laenor says, it's not that different from combat. She says, I hope this has a different outcome. Uh, it is it is not uh, coincidental, I think, Richard, that the that the period of Westeros that we're adapting for this show, it is called the Dance of the Dragons. So get your dancing shoes on. I think we might be yeah. there. You know, uh, for p- people who have been, you know, had a wedding before know that you always have to have a rain plan just, you know, in case the weather turns bad, if it's an outdoor wedding. And in this case, it seems like they had a in case the husband's boyfriend kills or no, is killed by the wife's boyfriend secret um, boyfriend we're just gonna do it we're gonna do it in a small room uh that night (laughs) i think these kinds of contingencies you need to have in place in the seven kingdoms it's just practical it really is uh so of course we're gonna talk about all of that uh we of course want to hear from all of you out there you want to write in you want to send in some feedback we've got a line for that still watching pod at gmail.com that's still watching pod at gmail.com. In many ways, this episode feels like a really significant point in the story, perhaps even the end of an era. We want to know what you're thinking about the show halfway through season one. Please send in that feedback, what you're thinking of these first five episodes of House of the Dragon, how it's stacking against Game of Thrones so far. Is it meeting, exceeding, not quite meeting your expectations? All of that good stuff. Still watching pod at gmail.com. Richard and I are going to recap the entire episode scene by scene in just a beat. But first, we're going to take a quick break. We will be right back. Hey, I'm Brian Stelter, host of Inside the Hive from Vanity Fair. This week, with the help of Dan Adler and Olivia Nuzzi, we're going inside the media circus swirling around Donald Trump's criminal trial. 
people want coverage of Donald Trump. There are sort of shades of 2015, 2016. I found it to be a, a total break from the reaction to a lot of Trump coverage in the last two years. Join me, Brian Stelter, on Inside the Hive from Vanity Fair. Listen wherever you get podcasts. All right, Richard, uh, it's episode five. We Light the Way is the name of this one. And we begin the way through this episode in The Veil, a very recognizable location from Game of Thrones. First time we are seeing it here on House of the Dragon. And we are here for just a quick little murder. Just a real brief, uh, you know, just it's been a minute. We need a murder. We want to start with a murder. Here's a murder. Yeah. And it's it's sad because, you know, this episode introduce, introduces us to two interesting characters who are then summarily <laughs> killed off, um, yep. which is a shame. Um, and I really like this introduction um, to uh, Damien's wife. But um, yeah, she wasn't. It was a short lived uh, cameo of sorts. Yes. Uh, Rachel Redford is the actor who plays uh, Lady Rhea of House Royce. Uh, she is the lady of Runestone. And this is. Damon's wife, who we have not heard such glowing things about uh, from Damon's really terrible perspective and what he has said about the women of the Vale largely over the course of the show has been awful. Uh, And I think in meeting this woman, I think that this is one of the things that Game of Thrones used to do so well. You know, I'm rewatching season one of Game of Thrones right now for my sins, Richard, because I can't get away from Westeros, I suppose. And there's so many characters in that first season who are who are done in one. They're either in an episode and that's it. Or they're in just a couple of episodes and then they're gone very quickly. Your Sirio Pharrells, your Yorins of the Night's Watch. And I feel like they give us a character here in this opening scene who you would want to watch the, the Rhea Royce show. Uh, she's, yeah. she's very, very loaded with character. She's got the bow. She's riding so confidently. And it just so happens that she's married to this terrible, terrible dragon prince who just wants her money and to be free and clear to marry whoever he wants. And so murder occurs. Yeah, I, I think her, her introduction and, you know, a brief spell on the show, um, it, it, you know, Damon has described her a certain way. And then you meet her and she's a seemingly independent, interesting person who, you know, her country or her, her the local people seem to like her, you know, at least this one cousin. Um, and you're like, of course. That's how he would see her. There's someone who is who who doesn't just like you know stand meekly and you know daintily in a corner is becomes you know uglier than the sheep and all this stuff. And um, I think it's just a further kind of uh, explication of like Damon's psychology and I think particularly his view toward women. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think it's uh, it's it's really telling you a lot about Damon and you know it's it's again this is this is a character who is remarkably compelling and also repugnant and that is another thing that game of thrones does well and can it hold your interest when somebody is just this despicable when he is just scaring this horse to murder his wife and it doesn't go all the way and she has that final line i knew you couldn't finish and there comes the rock and there comes the killing blow um this play is a little different in the book richard uh she certainly she certainly dies and Damon certainly sets his sights on, well, now I want to go and scoop up all of her riches now that she's gone. Um, but the I think the timeline of did he kill her? It's certainly not suggested that he did in the book. To my recollection, I just went back and checked out the passage. Um, but I don't think it's a far leap out of character to put this in the show. Uh, I do not think that it is anywhere outside the vicinity of what Damon Targaryen is all about. For him to be the one who actively kills Rhea in the book, it's a hunting accident. On the show, it's much more than that. 
Yeah. And I think that, you know, for, for the purposes of television, like the look on her face when she realizes what he's going to do, like, oh, that's the path you see to to get, you know, into the onto the throne um, is like chilling. And I, you know, I don't know. I guess you could describe that in a book, but I think maybe inventing that for TV makes sense. Yeah, it's a good adaptation choice. I agree. Um, so we're going to go across the narrow sea to drift, Mark. There's a very quick scene here where where we start to see that Viserys is not doing well. He is getting seasick. It could just be seasickness, but we are going to come to see that it is uh, it is a lot more than that that's going on for the king. Um, we'll have a lot of time to to dig deeper into this one, but I kind of want to talk about what's going on with Alicent first. Um, we get this scene where Otto Hightower, he's leaving. He's been fired as Hand of the King. It's his final day. He's uh, about to commute back home to Old Town, uh, and he has some parting advice for Alicent, who he says, okay, so you chose Rhaenyra. Uh, that's great. That was actually a very bad decision. Uh, and it's so bad because if Rhaenyra ends up on the Iron Throne, war is going to follow. The people of the realm, they're not going to accept her. And in order to secure her claim, she's going to kill you and your children. She'll have no choice. You know it. You're no fool, yet you choose not to see it. The time is coming. You have to prepare Aegon to rule or you want to cling to Rhaenyra and start praying for her mercy. And this is a very, very, very scary thing for Alicent to hear. Yeah, I mean it's it, it's it, it's it's sad. It's you know because uh, Allison, you know, in this episode is is learning that she's been lied to. That her friendship with um, Rhaenyra, as old as it might be, is on very you know tenuous ground. And um, I think anytime you see in in stories like this, where or even a mob story or whatever, where people all of a sudden wake up and realize, oh, I've gotten really far into this, and I there's not like a safe way out, you know, and. Right. Um, I think she thought, well, you know, we're just kind of ladies of the court and we hang out and we wear dresses and we do this. And sure, we want more, but like we're safe. And her realizing quite profoundly that like not only am I not safe, but I've been pushed into a really precarious position by pretty much everyone I know. Yeah, uh, which is going to be echoed in what's going on at Driftmark with uh, with Rainus, who's going to be telling her husband in a couple of minutes, we're going into the into the lion's den here or the dragon's den, as it were. We do not need to be doing this and we are actively endangering ourselves. So at least she is uh, vocalizing that idea that you're talking about for sure. Um, very quickly, still with with Allison, just to stay with her for a bit. She's alone, right? You know, everybody else is on this expedition to to Driftmark, and she's staying behind, and she's still been left with the uncertainty of what happened with with Rhaenyra, what happened with Damon, what happened with that entire situation. And here comes Laris Strong, uh, Clubfoot, a character you and I have not uh, yet talked about, but this is the same guy who's eating biscuits at the camp in episode three. He's finally really speaking up here. Uh, and it seems like he has a little bit of pot stirring that he wants to do here. He talks about an outsider among the natives as he's looking at this flower that's indigenous to Bravos, yet thriving here for mysterious reasons, uh, maybe alluding to Allison, maybe alluding to his own place in this political cycle. But he's trying to uh, pass along some information to Allison as subtly as a hammer uh, as he talks about the tea that was brought to Rhaenyra's chambers. And this really, really rattles Alicent in a big way. Yeah. And, you know, poor, sweet, naive Alicent, I don't necessarily realize that she's being manipulated by yet another person, <laughs> you know, like, like she kind of thinks that he maybe doesn't know what he's talking about and she's, but she's right. putting the pieces together. But of course, Laris knows exactly what he's doing. 
Um, and I guess, you know, I, I know you're familiar with the book. I've not read it. My hunch is that Laris is going to become, you know, is going to be stick around, you know, like, um, because clearly he's got some agenda going on, um, sort of this Richard III-esque figure. Um, so I'm curious about, you know, whether he's just a little piece of the puzzle kind of moving the plot forward or uh, if we're going to see the kind of fullness of his ambition later on. Yeah, what I'll say is I've been really eager to see Laris Clubfoot. Uh, I've been really eager to see this character. He's a really compelling figure in the way he's written by Martin in Fire and Blood, the book this show is based on. Um, someone who I've been really fascinated to see. How is he going to be depicted on the show? How is he going to be used on the show? And this episode is really the the biggest taste of it we've gotten so far. And because there are so many characters and because we're just starting out, we're five weeks into this adventure right now. For those who haven't done the research or if the show hasn't made it clear enough, just to connect the family tree, Laris is the son of Lionel Strong, who had been Master of Laws, now the new Hand of the King. Probably a strong uh, choice, uh, literally, to be Hand of the King, given the advice that he has given Viserys in the past. Um, and the other member of that family that we know is Harwin Strong, Breakbones, who we've seen glimpses of as well. We saw him. Um, he's the one who's smiling goofily at Rhaenyra when she brings the boar back to camp back in episode three. He's the knight that runs into Rhaenyra in the streets of King's Landing in last week's episode. He's the knight who Lionel gives the nod to to go and help break up the fight at the at the wedding feast at the end of this episode as well. So the three of those characters are all connected, and I think that they're compellingly so because I feel like they represent very different types of people. The two brothers especially. One is considered, his name is Breakbones because he's considered the strongest man in Westeros. The other one is talking about being an outsider, right? You know, he's basically discussing himself. Uh, I don't know that I necessarily belong here, but let's see if I can't find a way to thrive. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that it, it's it's fun to see more and more pieces arrayed on this board, you know, because I think in the early episodes of this season, I was worried, okay, we're so Targaryen heavy with a few, you know, interventions from a Hightower here or a Valerian there. But like, now to have this other family kind of because everyone is crouching in anticipation about what's about to happen, you know, they right. can see that the king is ill with not, not grayscale, it's not any of the other, you know, Westerosi diseases that I'm familiar with, but like, it's something and so everyone is just making sure that they are best positioned. Um, and I think that's tense and exciting to watch. Yeah. Um, one of the conditions that Viserys suffers from in the book, Richard, is is the king's disease, is gout. Uh, and as someone who also occasionally suffers from gout myself... God, I hope that's not what's waiting for me. Oh, no. <laughs> it looks pretty, pretty grim what's going on with Viserys as he is. He's really sick on, on this voyage to Driftmark. And he is coming here to smooth things over with the Sea Snake, to you know arrange this marriage between Rhaenyra and Laenor, to maybe undo some of the damage that had been done in their relationship previously, and coming directly himself to really solidify this, to show how serious he is about it, but at great physical cost. And the sea snake really teasing that out as well. Pretty rude of the sea snake to not be there when Viserys shows up, don't you think? Yes. Yeah. I, I, I was really intrigued by the the dynamic of this discussion, you know, uh, uh, of like the terms of the arrangement. Obviously, the king was not going to, you know, concede the, the last name thing or whatever. But like, Obviously, this is good in the very, very short term for the sea snake and his family, but also, as is later pointed out by his wife, like 
very very dangerous possibly and right. so i'm just I, I i guess maybe their backs they feel they're up against a wall to some extent but like um i like that it's not a sort of like that they're aware of all the possible facets of all the possible outcomes here they're not just thinking in you know unilaterally in, in like a, okay good we're gonna be get a, our son into the into the, the center of power right I think, you know, the, the sea snake, it's, you know, it's, if, if it's gone unnoticed by, by certain people, it's worth emphasizing. He is this, this, you know, really seasoned, experienced adventurer. He has seen, you know, we hear from, from Rainier when she and Kristen are going to be talking on the boat a little while from now about, uh, what, you want me to just like sail off with you all the way to a shy? He's been there, uh, the sea snake has. He's been there. He has been everywhere. He has... Uh, built his 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 house in in a really very real way on the riches that he's accumulated over the course of many of these adventures. So much so that HBO reportedly wants to make a show about it. It's one of the one of the possible successor shows that's still in development. Is one about the young version of the sea snake. So we think that there is a fearlessness to him. There is a decisiveness to him as well. He even mentioned it back in episode two when he tells uh, when he tells Viserys. That you can either sail around a storm or you can sail right into it, but you should never await its coming. And so maybe sensing the, you know, the stakes of the danger in the air right now, if he's looking at the situation the same way that Otto Hightower is, for instance, that when Viserys goes and Rhaenyra is the person who has been uh, named as heir and is going to ascend to the Iron Throne, and if the realm really isn't going to accept that, where does he want to be within that? It sounds to me like he would like to sail right into that storm. And perhaps yeah. Rhaenys, who is experienced in, in this, having almost been the queen of Westeros herself once upon a time, feels like, you know what? I would much prefer sailing around the storm. I was in the eye of the storm. Let me tell you about the eye of the storm. Overrated. Not so great. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You know, I, I think it, the, the, these scenes establish really well. I mean, this whole episode does that there are no perfect options here. You know, there's only like, what do we think? OK, thinking four moves ahead, like, you know, we want the high ground, but what does that high ground look like? And wh who does that align us with? Like these people in all of their striving have like, you know, kind of brought this all on themselves in a way. And um, so there's something a little bit not schadenfreude esque, but like, but deserved about it you know it's like you've all been jockeying for this and here's what's good you know here's the mess that you're going to make of it and already have made of it um and i think it's it's interesting to watch you know consequence close in around them yeah absolutely um one other note from uh what's going on with the sea snake and, and rain is when once they get a moment to to talk did you catch that the sea snake has apparently just collected the crab feeder's mask as a trophy i feel like that's kind of uh grim that that's just in his throne room yeah yeah considering who the crab feeder was killing <laughs> you know like yeah. it's an odd it's an odd prize to have um you know uh and i guess you i hope know. he washed it you know Ooh, and he should have yeah. been sterilized <laughs> yeah right well you can boil it and then you can artifact make, if you boil it you make crab stock with the with the <laughs> <laughs> yeah a very flavorful soup uh yeah Yep. Yeah, it takes a lot to make a stew. Um, okay, so let's talk about Rhaenyra and her betrothed, uh, Sir Lane or Knight of House Valerion, uh, son of the Sea Snake and Rhaenys. Uh, and Rhaenyra and Lanor are cousins, uh, so they are related. Um, this is now an improvement over uncle and niece and an improvement over sister and two-year-old brother, if nothing else, Richard? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. I mean... Uh, th their walk on the beach um, is, I think, a really sweet and sort of 
you know, nimbly written scene um, where, you know, Rhaenyra is like, you're gay and that's okay. Right. Like, I also have my own thing going on. So let's just like, we're, we've known each other our whole lives. Let's just like do this thing for our parents and then we can, we'll just be friends. We'll hang out. And it like, you know, and, and Lenore seems so relieved by that. And they, they form this special little bond together. And anytime that happens in the, in the world of George R. R. Martin, you know, it's going to be short lived, <laughs> you know, yeah, like there are no any moment endings. of sweet, any moment of sweetness is going to be very violently challenged. Probably, you know, a few scenes later. I mean, it does happen within this episode, right? That his boyfriend is going to be horribly killed yeah. Uh, yeah. by yeah. by Sir Kristen. Yeah. So it's yeah. like really, really short lived. Was was the was the pacing of that surprising to you, Richard? Or does that feel kind of of a piece of the pace of the show right now, and a pace of the franchise, maybe even? Well, you know, as as any of the uh, the old school Renly and Loras fans can tell you, uh, <laughs> we know that this show is going to be um, particularly hard on um, any sort of queer romance in the, in the show. Yes. Um, no, you know, and and I think that's a little frustrating in a way. But, um, you know, I understand um, that this that that just needs to that the, the death of Joffrey, who is, you know, Lenor's secret boyfriend, um, is 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 kind of hurling Lenor more into the center of the story, you know, Um because you have to wonder like what this moment on the beach, it seems like there he and his, you know, soon to be wife are seeing very eye to eye, but will that change it at all? Like what, what what's going to happen? So I, I understand it from a narrative perspective. It's just a shame that like we now have at least two in a pattern uh, in the game of Thrones universe uh, where any sort of gay romance is very violently uh, torn asunder pretty quickly after it's introduced. Yeah, uh, no, it's it's really it's really brutally done. Um, it I, I wrote about this for VF.com. The way that it plays out in in the book is is different. Um, it happens during we're, we're, we hear that the that the celebration is going to last for several days, right? That this is the welcome feast. We're going to have seven days of, of jousting. It's going to be a tournament, the whole nine yards. Um, and and Joffrey goes up against Kristen Cole during the tournament. And Kristen Cole just unleashes his rage on Joffrey there. Uh, and Joffrey lives for you know another few days before before he passes, and Lainor is by his side the whole time. The show did it a lot more graphically uh, and did it a lot faster. Yeah. Um, it did it in the space of a single episode. He's a character that appears, I think, in two sentences in uh, in in Fire and Blood. Um, but the 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 life that is uh, that is brought to him on this show um, by I believe the actor is uh, Sally McLeod, uh, who is uh, who really I thought did. Even in one episode, Richard, best Joffrey of the Game of Thrones franchise, I think, uh, decidedly. <laughs> yes, um, yes. I guess depending still, on your your love to hate status. Uh, yeah, might, I mean, he's still kind equation. of an asshole, you, you know. And also, again, like talking about um, uh, uh, Rhaenys and and the sea, the sea Dragon talking about like, OK, like, are we hurling ourselves into danger here? Like and and, you know, maybe all of this was unnecessary. They could have just enjoyed their own sort of place in the ecosystem of Westeros and not gotten uh, overextended by trying to put themselves very much at the center of power. And like here you have Joffrey. It's like, just don't say anything. What are you doing? Like, like you're you're making this worse and worse and worse. And so these people are, are all kind of power mad and they, you know, they, they're going to suffer the consequences either immediately in the case of Joffrey or later on in the case of, I'm sure many of these other characters. So it's frustrating, but it's also like, just this is who these people are and this is how they've gotten to this position. Not to um to to you know I, I I feel like it's worth pointing out as well um you know we talked a, a couple minutes ago about the sea snake's old wisdom of you sail into the storm or you sail around it but you must never ignore it uh, at all costs uh, and there's this moment between him and his wife in the throne room 
where he's saying Rainier is a great match. He must be really excited. Lanor must be so excited. She's gotten more comely in the years since then. And Rainey's is trying to say, you know, our son is gay, right? You know, right, right. this is yeah. this is not this is not a, a thing that he's going to be super excited about. And you even see the sea snake is is, you know, classically trying to ignore it or he'll grow out of it and everything. So um, adding further, further tragedy to the to the whole situation, for sure. And that stubbornness and that refusal to like see the whole of the truth um, seems to be kind of Corliss's Achilles heel right now. You know, yes. like like he's going to keep getting into trouble if he's going to be so prideful. And, and you know, I think that it, it, it's it's telling that that Rainus, who has had her own losses, her own failures, her own regrets in the past, um, is much more attuned to like the nuances of things than her husband is. You know, she's like, look, it, things don't always work out exactly as you want them to and we have to be able to be adaptable and like we're we're fixing this with our son to some extent all i'm saying is don't expect him to have some like glorious sex life with his new wife like that's not gonna happen but everything else could work out maybe you know yeah but he he doesn't see it that way everything has to be exactly as he as he wants it to be well it also it's again another crusade you know the way that he talks to 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 rainus about this is by all rights you should be the queen of the seven kingdoms you were robbed of the crown i want to remedy the small-minded error of the rest of the realm by any means necessary small-minded error is a uh, a really long way to say the misogyny of the realm right. um but you know he he feels very strongly about you were wrong then i'm going to write it um, that attitude, Richard, I have found fairly works out terribly well for people, but we'll see. We'll oh, see yeah, how that works yeah. out. How's the trick. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, okay. So we, we are going to, we're going to leave drift Mark. We're leaving with a marriage pact. We're leaving with a very ill Viserys and we are leaving with a Sir Kristen Cole having an existential crisis, Richard. He essentially is going to, in you know, the cold light of day at dawn, He's going to find uh, Rhaenyra on the ship and, you know, very boldly talk about, I have a plan. We could go to Essos. I want to see what is beyond Westeros. Um, We could be nameless. We could be free to go wherever we like, love how we like. You could marry me, a marriage for love and not for the crown. Um, She is uh, all but just saying hard pass, uh, you know, in this moment. I am the dragon. You think I'm going to give that up for, for you? Uh, this is um, this is this is a tough, tough read for for Sir Kristen Cole. This gives him a whole a whole lot of existential dread that happens in this moment where he realizes, what did I just break my oath for? Right. Right. Yeah. And, and you know, the the, the, the poignancy of, of, of in any story like this, any classical tragedy, you know, you almost kind of narratively have to at least for a moment introduce the alternative like. What if we did just go and lived on our own and left all of this behind? You know, it, it sort of it it presents a possibility that I think a lot of these people have never even considered that like there is a place somewhere. I mean, it's very West Side Story, you know, somewhere out there like there is a life that would be ours and right free of all of this conflict. Um, and you always know because it is a trope of, of tragedy that one of the one of the two part one of the parties is not going to agree to it, you know, because they're, they're not going to um, it's not going to be acceptable or it will seem too impossible. And. So we know that that's the refusal is coming, certainly, but it still registers painfully because you're, you start to think about it and you're like, yeah, that does sound a lot better. You know, if these were real people, I would tell them, please do exactly what Cole said. Oh, he yes. To do. Yeah, uh, there's definitely, uh, you know, the show is ongoing. We're in episode five. We have we've no idea how many episodes long term we are going to have on House of the Dragon. 
But safe to call this one yet another inflection point, maybe. <laughs> if you just went after that orange and, and, and cinnamon dream that Kristen is talking about, uh, we could have called it at five episodes and had a really yeah. nice limited series. <laughs> They they hop in a little rowboat from uh, from the main ship and just row into the right. sunset and then you know credits roll. They could pull a Galadriel and just jump in, go swimming. Sure, uh, they could yeah. swim all yeah. the way back for sure. Uh, so he is um, he he takes this very very poorly. Uh, he says, "So what? I'm 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 just your whore. That's how you view me." Uh, and she says, "No, I want us to keep going. I want you to be my my sworn protector, my white knight." And I don't know if this is. Uh, you know, is this communication breakdown? Is this really just wrongheaded from both of them? But either way, it is uh, it is it is a collapse of the relationship at this moment in time, at the very least. And it sets the table for what comes to, at the very end of this episode or toward the very end, you know, where we now have two young people deeply devoted to uh, Rhaenyra who have have pretty brutally realized like where they stand in her estimation, you know, right. like, oh, we're not actually allies. Allison is not and uh, Kristen is not, you know, they are they are important to her. But is it sort of selfish and strategic more than it is, you know, equal? And um, I think those twin realizations in this episode obviously are going to come to bear pretty heavily narratively going forward. A hundred percent. So let's put those two characters together, because when the ship pulls in, Viserys collapses. He held it together as long as he could. He's going to be taken to his chambers and we'll check in on him in a moment. Um, but first, uh, Alicent, uh, the queen, who is trying to figure out, OK, did I did I get this wrong? Uh, was Rhaenyra lying to me? I want to vet this further. Sir Kristen is her sworn protector, uh, stands outside her chambers all night long. He would know. And so she she brings him to her chambers and says, so this is all that I've got. Let me just like draw it out. And he's like, I did it. It was me. I did it. I'm the one. Uh, and he just he just he spills like chunk and goonies. He tells he tells her everything. Yeah. Um, you know, I've seen that scene a couple times now. What I, what I can't quite suss out is like, is there relief in Allison at that moment where she's like, oh, they're just like, it's just some young love situation or 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 is she just seeing more of the of the bad picture of Rhaenyra, you know, develop? Right. Um, I think that the way that that this reads to me in this moment is, you know, she's trying to figure out on her radar what what she is trying to figure out is there is this rumor. There is this there is this uh, there's this source that told her father who went to the king and got fired over giving this news report about Damon and Rhaenyra being together. I, she's now heard about the tea as well, which flies in the face of Rhaenyra telling Allison, I swear on my mother, nothing happened. Um, so she's vetting that story further with Kristen. And when Kristen cops to being the one who who slept with Rhaenyra, it's it's the it's the answer that she feared. And yet the answer that she didn't even know was an answer to a question that she wasn't even thinking to ask, uh, that it could be this person, that it could be this man. Um, And just in discharging him in this moment when he, you know, consumed with guilt, consumed with, you know, this existential crisis of please don't geld me. But yeah, you can kill me. I, I broke my oaths. I deserve to die. She just sends him on on his on his way. And I think it's in, in this moment, the pain is so close to the to the surface that she's not thinking any deeper about, well, what will happen between me and Sir Kristen Cole? You know, what what do I do with this knowledge of what Sir Kristen Cole did? The hurt is just so right there. The injury has yeah. just occurred in the deepest of ways. Yeah. And, and you know, she's been 
She's been lied to. And I guess, you know, Rhaenyra could maybe sort of flip it around if they were to have some sort of confrontation. Maybe they will. I don't know. It was like, well, you went behind my back and married my father. But like, Allison didn't really have any agency in that decision. You know? Correct. Yeah. No. So she's kind of emerging as one of the more egregiously wronged characters in this show. You know, um, in, in, you know, she's been lied to. She's been forced into a strategic marriage that has now kind of blown up in everyone's faces and put her at great risk. And um, I'm really curious to see what's next for her. I mean, it's my hunch, given the way this episode ends, that this we might be arriving at the time jump with the new actors that we talked about early on in the season. Mm. Um, Okay. Yeah. <laughs> we are halfway through. It would be kind of a neat punctuation point. Um, sure. But there I think are there, uh, you know, main cast series regulars who have yet to appear on the show, you know, front right, build right. characters. So, you know, you would think with five episodes left, maybe they're going to start showing up. Especially because Olivia Cook, who who is going to play older Allison, like is one of the more namier, one of the namier actors in this in the series. From what I, you know, right, right. Um, you know, you have Reese Fons, obviously, but like there, there are some bigger names, Eve Best, but like Olivia Cook's been like kind of a, a, a up and coming actor for a while now, and and um, I would assume that that means that Allison, in whatever episode Olivia Cook pops up in, um, is going to be pretty central to the story, and I'm, I'm I think they've laid that groundwork very subtly whereas a lot of the other stuff with like damon and, and rainier herself has been a bit more um you know direct and blunt and but with allison we're seeing a long payoff of like here's where this character was being positioned because um actually a lot of our empathy is now supposed to be placed on her which i think is a fascinating development well i think i think it's really smartly told right because allison's journey is such a lonely one uh, you know, she is, you know, who who are her allies? It was Rhaenyra and she's lost that friendship because of circumstances, you know, mostly largely beyond her control, if not completely beyond her control. Uh, is it her father who has just been fired, but also he pimped her out to the king? Is it the king who is this, you know, sore covered man who maybe sometimes is a nice enough guy, but also super gross and this is gross and he's also spineless a lot of the time? She does not have she doesn't have the, you know, the the people that maybe Rhaenyra has. She doesn't have even the people that that Damon has on on the battlefield. Her story is such a lonely one that I think that the way that the show has rolled her story out matches the the loneliness of her journey, that it has been such a long haul to get deeper into Allison's level of thinking. And when she's going to make her grand arrival at the welcome ceremony a couple of scenes from now, it's like she's showing up on the show for the first time in some way. Yeah. 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 And, you know, I mean, I, I obviously like it, that nothing matches up one to one, but like you see a lot of Sansa Stark in her at yeah. this point, you see some Jon um, Snow in some ways, like isolated, you know, uh, sort of has a, a familial shame now that Hightower has been dismissed, you know. Um, but uh, so I, I, I Game of Thrones is not always just about like, bloodthirsty power mad people like there are other there are at least one or two in any given season or any given episode people who have a little more decency and i think the audience are supposed to sympathize with and clearly allison um is going to be that figure what i will be curious to see going forward now that we've had this huge inflection point on the show is does she become as bloodthirsty as the rest of them or does she remain a bit more not innocent exactly but um you know gentle yeah. Well, I think I think it's a it's a great observation. I think it's very easy to compare her since she is the queen of Westeros to another queen of Westeros who who we have known in in Cersei. And 
we don't see Cersei as a young person, except for the one time where you see this weird flashback uh, scene that usually never happens on Game of Thrones, and yet they did it once upon a time. It was strange, the Maggie the Frog of it all. Um, but you don't see her her story when she was when she was married to Robert. You hear about it. You hear about those days, and you see a lot of that lovelessness and and frankly abuse in the relationship between the two of them during season one of of Game of Thrones. But when you think about the the you know the situation that Cersei herself was thrust into, it is terrible. Um, and I think in Alicent um, right now we are we are getting a chance to to kind of see what that process may have looked like for a character who. As as delicious as a performance as Lena Headey gave as as Cersei Lannister throughout much of Game of Thrones, she's typically a loathsome character uh, and does so many loathsome things. Um, but what what predated that? I guess is the question. And I think to some extent there is this there's this bit of the, like the Queen's origin story happening with with yeah. Allison that I think they've uh, done really interestingly here. And what will that mean? You know, if we do jump ahead in time, uh, next episode, let's say. Um, you know, how old is Aegon going to be? How old is that son of hers going to be? Right. And will right. will we see the sort of fierce protectiveness and, you know, that Cersei exhibited, you know, that she had loathsome, well, one loathsome child that who she like would, you know, burn the whole city down for if she had to, you know, and will, will that be the route that Allison kind of develops uh, into or will it be something else? Will we root for her um, going forward? Um, I don't know. But all of a sudden she's really emerged as I think the most interesting character for me on the show. Um, so one last scene before we are in wedding mode for the rest of it uh, is Viserys in his chambers looking rough. And I just want to present one of the most harrowing sentences I've ever heard in my life. This is from one of the maesters who says, rest now, your grace. I will bring the leeches. Um, not what I want to hear when I'm feeling sick. <laughs> no, no, no. But it apparently gives him great comfort. So, you know, look, I'm not going to yuck anyone's yum. So. <laughs> This other guy's like, you know, maybe modern medicine. Do we want to do like a poultice? Maybe he's like, no, right. he loves the leeches. <laughs> yeah. yeah, he's into them. Trust me, he <laughs> loves the leeches. You know, there's a hospital in Old Town we could just take him to. But <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we could just get on a dragon and go. Yeah. Um. So he he looks awful. His arm looks awful. His you know his his color is drained. He just looks so ill. Um, and he is yet again. This is the the story of the day, Richard. It is another existential crisis. He is wondering about his place in history. He's saying, will I be remembered as a good king? Hundreds of years of now, from now, will, be they, will they be singing stories about me, uh, singing songs about me at feasts? Um, I often thought that um, uh, I wished that I'd been tested. I had no great victories. I have no great defeats. I wish I'd been tested. I often think that in the crucible, I may have been forged a different man. And I love this scene very much because this poor fool does not realize he is in the crucible. He is there right now. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And it's just coming toward the end of what looks to be the end of his life. Um, and the results of his legacy or the real legacy, he probably won't live to see because by nature, his most important act is one that will only really come to fruition once he's dead. You know, it was a big it's a big deal that he made his successor the first ever, you know, potential female ruler of this country. Um, and that's big. And maybe, you know, I don't I mean, I'm, I don't think things are going to go very well in, the, in terms of that handover transfer of power. Well, it gives you the sense but, of that. Well, well, you know, I don't know. Maybe, seems... maybe the back half is like kind of a co workplace comedy. I don't know. But, uh -huh. um, yeah. you know, and, and you know, I, I'm sure that there would be plenty of people in Westeros years, you know, after this who would be like, 
yeah, it led to a whole big mess, but like good for him for trying, you know, he was trying to help break that glass ceiling and, you know, he doesn't probably see it exactly that way, but he did make at least one bold, definitive world changing choice. It's just one that he won't ever see the results of by its very definition. It's just, it's just so, it's so compelling to me because I think it is, it is, it is so human to not know when you're in the crucible, uh, that you're right. in it. You know, you're so yeah. deep in the belly of the beast that you have no idea you've been swallowed up at all. Uh, and like, certainly this man is very sick. He's delirious almost. Um, but I think that there is, there is this, is it is it willful ignorance? Does he have more of a sense of of where he is? You know, um, you know, both literally and existentially than than he's letting on that he would care to admit to himself right now. I just thought it was a really fantastically written scene and just performed beautifully by by both actors um, in in the scene. Um, I'm yeah. really I really love what Gavin Spokes is doing as Lionel Strong, and I think that the two of them together in the scene it was. It was gentle. It was sad. It was tragic as seven hells. Uh, I thought it was. I thought it was really, really, really good. Yeah, and if it is indeed a send off for this character and this actor, um, it's it's good. I mean, it's it's really strong and um, lends some real human shape to uh, what you know is often this this season so far is very process oriented, very like okay, yeah. then you know ca- causality. And this was just a moment of quiet reflection um, as a character faces you know their end. Um, okay, so it's time for the welcome ceremony, and it's a it's a blockbuster event. We're going to be here for just about the rest of the episode. Uh, dragons riding high over King's Landing, the Sea Snakes fleet, the whole thing it looks like showing up. Um, everybody, it's a it's a veritable who's who of the the Westerati here on Game of Thrones show, and it's Jason Lannister, both of the Lannister twins. I don't think we've checked in since uh, Lannister twins showed up on the show. Do you have any strong takes about Jason Lannister here? Well, just that I, you know, I don't know in this world if you introduce a Lannister or Lannisters plural, that they're just going to be background characters who are who are there only to be like, oh, yeah, like the family that's later in all that power. You know, I, I, I right. would have to imagine that, um, you know, the Lannister project that we see where it is uh, in the original Game of Thrones series probably took a lot of time to to build up to and so maybe we're seeing you know once yet another noble family of great wealth and power throwing starting to sort of throw a hat in the ring i mean he already tried kind of with the proposal but um yeah so i, I guess we should we should keep an eye on on him and you know any yeah. other lannister that appears all lannisters must be watched um Sir Gerald of the Vale, he shows up. He wants to, um, I think he wants to speak his piece about what happened to Lady Rhea at the start of this episode. A unique character whose kind is not likely to be seen again, he says. And Rhaenyra is going to address it when it's interrupted by the grand arrival of the Sea Snake, Lord Corlys of House Valerion, Master of Tides, Lord of Driftmark. It's just a, a really epic, rollicking introduction. Uh, Prince Lenor, future king consulate, everyone is really, really, you know, everyone's getting up. You know, the, the crowd is lit here, Richard, uh, for, for this occasion. And then the tune changes really quickly. There's a big sort of hold my beer energy to this scene where it starts with the sea snake. You think you can't top it. Here comes Prince Damon showing up. He has been kicked out of King's Landing and he did not ask for permission. He's not begging for forgiveness either. And he's just showing up and rolling into town. 
And the very ill Viserys does not look thrilled to see his brother. And you would think that that would be the showstopper. Queen Alicent rolls up in the greenest of green dresses. As Laris Clubfoot says, the beacon on the high tower of Old Town glows green when they call their banners to war. This is a declaration of war of sorts. It is. And my question is, and I mean, I, you know, and I'm sure you know more about this having read the books, is like, who is Alicent going to align with, you know, or does she maybe not need it? Maybe the high towers and people in Old Town. Old Town is not a location that we really travel to much at all in Game of Thrones. Obviously, um, Sam went, ended Sam up there, Sam spends right? time there. Yeah, yeah Sam yeah, spends time like, there. He's training up. Yep. But it's like the biggest city in this in Westeros and and yeah. we spend more time in, in, in King's Landing. So I'm just curious about what that that power looks like, that might looks like and who it aligns with. And um, yeah, I just in terms of the under better understanding the world of this of this show, like I'll be curious to see what that green signal really means. I think um, one of the things that's worth chewing on as you as you ponder that question and anyone out there who's pondering the same who hasn't who hasn't read this is um yeah what's the might of what is the might of the high tower house what is the might of old town actually look like in practice um but you think back to episode three when the aforementioned jason lannister is telling king viserys i would love to marry your daughter she won't you know she'll be well compensated for her loss of station uh and him kind of you know tipping his hand of the revelation that many of us out here are assuming that you're going to name your son as the heir now that you have a son and his name happens to be aegon um, and so there is that sentiment. And you even get it when Allison has a moment alone with her uncle. Uh, and he says, that, you know, know that Old Town stands with you. There are people who are going to cling for dear life to the patriarchal idea of a man has to sit on the Iron Throne and no chance is a woman going to sit there. Uh, right. And in this in this move of showing up wearing colors that are decisively from her house, that are decisively of Old Town, decisively of House Hightower, um, breaks away from Targaryen tradition, you know, in this very, very clear visual signal. And I think that that is this mark of independence for Allison. And what does it mean in terms of who specifically she might be collecting for whatever cause it is she might be championing? At the very least, it seems like her making a choice uh, of the choices that were laid available to her by her father at the start of the episode. Either uh, you win or you die, to, to paraphrase another Game of Thrones character. So I think that that's, that's the really big takeaway um, that people should be looking at, I think, uh, from my viewpoint uh, of Allison's big arrival here. It's just a, mar- it's a, it's a marker of, of um, breaking away from this house that she's been married off to. It's her first real public act of agency that we've seen from her since she's become the queen. And, you know, if we, if what happens to Viserys at the very end of this episode is in fact, what we think happens, which is that he's dead. She is both in a precarious position, but also freed a bit, you know, um, her, she, she, she can probably more, uh, freely seek out, uh, you know, the counsel of her father, who is a master strategist and anyone else, you know, um, it, she, she was, she had to kind of be in Viserys's, you know, shadow but now if he's gone um she it kind of activates her that much more right right um monumental moment uh i was i was very excited to see this once i watched it on the screen it's a it's a little different from how it goes down in the book in the book uh there is this there's this um five-year anniversary of king viserys and queen allison's wedding uh and she is showing up wearing green 
and Rhaenyra, who is not the biggest Alicent fan and vice versa at that moment in the story is showing up in Targaryen black and red. So when you hear about the blacks and the greens, this is something that is commonly associated when you're talking about people who are associated with uh, Rhaenyra and Alicent respectively. It stems from that moment in the book. Um, notably, uh, I think that the emphasis in the book is on Rhaenyra's attire. The emphasis on the show is very much more on on Alicent. So an adaptation choice that I thought visually was was really, really striking and, and, and quite strong. So the dancing uh, begins here. The Dance of the Dragons. Uh, this is the one. This is it. This is what you've heard about. It's not. Uh, but it's a good dance scene uh, as we're getting this moment between Lenor and Rhaenyra that we talked about already. This this whole conversation of I was never much of a dancer, not that much different from combat. Everybody's watching and then everybody joins in the dance and it is this this big celebratory atmosphere while uh, while House of the Dragon then goes on to do all of the things that you expect from Game of Thrones, right? Like all of the side conversations, all of the secret little intricate wheeling and dealings that occur in between all of these dance moves. Uh, we have Damon being confronted by Sir Royce of Runestone and him, you know, being just this this wicked little bratty prince that he is of, oh, well, now I'm, I, I believe because she died and we had no kids. I get everything. Uh, so I'm going to be flying to the bail. I'll see you pretty soon there, Sir Gerald. Uh, you know, he clocks his name. That's a pretty mm-hmm. dangerous moment. Uh, what did you think of this whole of this whole scene, the atmosphere, the vibe, the choreography, Richard? Well, I think, you know, we have the crucial thing of um, Lenar and Joffrey talking about like, all right, who's her secret bow, you know? And then meanwhile, Rhaenyra is not being subtle at all in staring at Kristen, you know, and uh, she will later see exactly what that led to. Um, and, uh, you know, I think it's another reminder as evidenced last week with this sort of reckless trip outside the castle and all this other stuff that like Rhaenyra is sh- shrewd and smart and, and uh, certainly headstrong, but she's also like, she's not yet good at like the, the, the subtler arts of this or whatever, you know, dance or game she's playing. Um, and that, you know, she's, she's not some perfect portrait of like, just like power made manifest. She makes mistakes. Right. She's, she's messy. And I think that's a really important kind of character detail to keep in mind about her. Um, and, you know, there's a, 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 a kind of a, a, a witlessness about her that like, you know, she she is in the position to cause great harm to people. And she does. She wields that uh, kind of unconsciously and unthoughtfully. And um, obviously, that's that's what happens in the scene, because she gives up the ghost. She she maybe doesn't know that there are people looking at her trying to figure out what her connection is to any any some man in the room. But like. Uh, she's she's not um, she's pretty brazen about it and it leads to bad places. And I, I think that probably will be a, a pattern with her. Yeah. Um, a couple of character interactions that I think are worth noting. We talked about um, Damon and Sir Gerald, but there's also Damon and Lena Valerion. That is the the young girl who has grown up a little bit in the in the many, many time jumps since episode two. That um, uh, a bit of a flirtation uh, seems mm-hmm. to be occurring between the two of them, Richard. Yes, yeah, and where that would go, I don't know. I mean, obviously, uh, Damon and the Valerians were were aligned a couple episodes ago. I guess still sort of technically are. I, you know, it's it's kind of muddy where Damon stands in anyone's estimation, but like clearly they still seem. You know, what w- was she dispatched by her father to do that? Like. Are they just trying to cover all their bases? Um, I don't know. But clearly, 
this show is setting tables for what's to come in the back half of the season and and having that character uh kind of you know she's older now she's clearly asserting a, a lot more agency like that's again not an accident she i'm sure she will be an, another um significant player going forward uh sir joffrey observes Kristen um dutifully watching rainiera though perhaps uh it is it is just a little more than being her knight her sworn protector uh, I think Joffrey recognizes within Kristen what is going on here, uh, and he goes and and speaks to him and thinks that they're speaking the same language of um, the 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 future king is as dear to me as the future queen is to you. We'll guard them together. We can be in this together. This will be something that protects all of us. And Kristen is is rigid uh, and is um, uh, unflinching in this moment. That will change very severely very soon. Um, but this moment is just it's it's loaded with danger in hindsight. It's just it's so not that it wasn't awful to watch on the first pass for me. But in hindsight, this is just such a such a tragic scene of this this sharing of information, this attempt at connection with this guy. Yeah. And like maybe I'm reading too much into it from a personal perspective, but like it's also like a gay guy overstepping and thinking that he's safe. And, uh, you know, Kristen, you know, kind of being like, get away from, you know, like it's very yeah. like. Um, I'm not like you, you know, and yeah. we're, we're not we're not on the same path. We're not the same people. Um, and obviously, Joffrey suffers mightily for that. Granted, he was trying to do something slimy and sort of, you know, like, you know, sneaky and, and, and trying to, you know, already trying to court advantage, you know, in this new situation. Um, so he's not 100 percent innocent in it. But I thought it was an interesting uh, further development in Kristen's character where, like, he has he's not just some quietly handsome you know, in, in soldier in love, he he's he's got a, a streak in him, a bad bad streak in him that uh, clearly leads him into almost uh, suicide. Yeah, um, I mean, I think I think a lot of it for for me, it's like this this whole this whole scene, this whole coming together. A lot of this is okay. Well, you know, let's meet the family, right? You know, I've heard so much about you. Uh, and I think that there there is a, a big element of that in Joffrey for me of, well, I, it seems like we're going to be spending a lot of time together, you know, kind of. Um, and it's just it's just he's you're exactly right. He's talking to the exact wrong person. Uh, and, yeah. uh, you know, he has, he has no context for what the real relationship with Kristen and Rhaenyra is. And Kristen just, you know, is going to unload uh, in this un unbelievably horrific way um, in, in just a couple of moments. Yeah, and I think that, you know, we talked about this in the first episode where they, you know, during the jousting, they talked about, and, and also later on when they're selecting, like, who will be the new member of the Kingsguard, like, that these boys, these young men, like, they haven't been to war. Kristen has seen battle in the Dornish incursion, so he has more experience than them. But a lot of the other young people in this scene or on this show, they're kind of just playing at this stuff, you know? They they don't really, they haven't, they in their lifetimes, they haven't really seen the right. direst of, of, of consequences for this stuff. So it, I think it's an interesting demarcation point where it's like Joffrey's just kind of like, you know, a pampered Lord of the court or whatever. And it's he, just, he so was there. He, he was at the war of the stepstones. He's, he's very, very briefly in, in episode three, more, you know, a little more than background player, but he, right. he has three years of, of, of war. But I think, you know, broadly speaking, and in like the, the context of what is the culture of the kingdom for sure. But because that was that was adventurism. That was, you know, kind of gentlemen of, of the British Empire, like, oh, we'll have a merry old war and we'll go, you know, do this. Yeah, and, hide and, and seek, you know, glorified. Yeah. And and now this is like, well, now this is about you specifically. And like, 
you are in danger and this is not stuff to be played with. And I think that, um, you know, Kristen is operating from a a much, um, you know, more like visceral personal angst in this thing. But like, I think this is just like a crucial introduction that like you are not safe at a fancy people's party anymore. (laughs) You know, you know, you're in danger when you're, you know, fighting, you know, battles on the beach or whatever. But like you're kind of in danger all the time and people are going to have to wake up pretty quickly to that fact. Yeah, this is, you know, the proverbial a Stark goes south, right? You know, this is like, just just stay in the north. Don't come down here. Um, So we're going to get this. uh, We're going to get this dance between Damon and Rhaenyra now, Um, I guess, on the other side of a very quick dance between Rhaenyra and Breakbones, Sir Harwin Strong. They have a quick little do-si-do before Damon cuts in. And once again, some high Valyrian exchanges between these two characters. And it feels like Damon's last pitch of, is this really what you want? Uh, you really want to be married to, you know, a good man, you know, admittedly, but a boring one. This is how you want to, to move forward. And she tells him, well, then take me. Has that not been your purpose? I'm not married yet. The hours are passing. I'm sure you're armed. Cut through my father's Kingsguard. Take me to Dragonstone and make me your wife. Uh, and so there's this really, really tense conversation happening between the two of them in this language that is not shared exclusively by the two of them, but it it feels that way sometimes. And Viserys is just pounding lobster or crab baby at his at his royal seat, watching this go down. Um, you know, wrecked with uh, with with all of the feelings that are swirling around this relationship from everything that he has heard recently, from everything that he feels independently towards these two people. And the view is obscured from him. And then from us, I would say, Richard, I don't know. I would really be curious to know, like, what was your view of how all of this ultimately goes to shit? Uh, it, it, felt, it felt sort of sudden. Are you, do, you, do you mean like the kind of scuffle that ends with Joffrey dead, you mean? Yes. Yeah. 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 I mean, it, 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 I think it's interesting that like it, when we realize something's happening, the camera is not on it happening, you know? At first, it, it's sort of just like in this blur of people. And I, I think that, you know, I guess you could see something metaphorical in that about like, um, you know, this is this is going to start like instantly, you know, like and you're not going to necessarily see it coming. It's just going to not be happening where everyone's going to be dancing and having a party one minute and the next year it's war, you know. And so so that that worked for me. And, I, you know, but going back to the Damon and uh, Rhaenyra conversation, it's like. Yet again, I don't think she's thinking clearly about like the consequences of what she's saying and suggesting. Yes. And and yes. um, she's a little drunk on her her prowess and her intellect. And, um, you know, and then all of a sudden. This thing breaks out that's going to have massive consequences. And, uh, you know, I think it's pretty deliberate that we don't see it. We, you know, we see the, the, the lead up to it, but then we cut away and then all of a sudden it's a catastrophe. Yeah, I mean, it's almost like anything could have set this off. It's a powder right. keg, right? Like yep. the whole place was soaked in oil. Uh, all it would take uh, was was or wildfire, even like it would take one match, one one slowly burning candle to blow up the whole place. Um, so it's it's almost presented to us um, whether or not maybe some people out there would have would have preferred more clarity. I, I've gone back and forth on it myself a little bit, but I think that there is a world where the interpretation of of how it's filmed and how it's presented to us, Richard, is kind of like. Um, anything could have set this off. It, the candle was burning down all the way to the bottom, no matter what. 
and you like then think forward to like the age of Daenerys and the Targaryens kind of exile in, you know, across the narrow sea. And uh, you hear about the Mad King and all this stuff. And you're like, no wonder Westeros was like, get those Targaryens out of here. They, they only <laughs> cause problems. Like, yeah. yeah, we want big, jolly, fat Robert Baratheon on the throne. He likes to hunt and he was a war hero and he got the Targaryens out. So like, like that's so much better than these people who ever even, you know, they can't even have a simple party without um, some sort of dynastic power struggle leading to murder. Yeah, well, it's like it's a it's this grand game of King of the Hill and the Targaryens have been the King of the Hill for the entirety of their arrival, you know, their reign since they've arrived. And I think a lot of what you see from the characters on the show in, in this period of time specifically, and then in Game of Thrones, we're living in the aftermath of it, is that we are we are dealing with people who want to cozy up to the King of the Hill. They want to make sure that they are on the, the winning side of this and potentially get their chance to shine as as well. Uh, so I think um, I think that so much of this show and, and the characters uh, and their motivations and the stories that spiral out from them is rooted in this tremendous fear of of who sits on the throne and the, the literal firepower that's backing them. Uh, and it does not come even remotely close to excusing the atrocities and the evil committed in the name of that fear. But I think that's, you know, it's power, it's fear. Fear is deeply rooted underneath a lot of the actions that that happen, not just in this episode, but I think across the across the whole fabric of this entire franchise, really. Um, and it sadly ends in this horrific death scene uh, of Kristen Cole is um, is going to take his rejection out specifically on Joffrey. He he beats him to death in this very very gruesome scene. We're left with with Lainor's wailing over his body. It's uh, it's it's terrible. This is terrible. And you kind of wonder like, did Lainor just out himself? You know, like I guess they could explain it away. No, it was just his dear friend since childhood. He was really sad right. about that. But it's like uh, I don't know. I think some of the men in that room would see that reaction and the wheels would start turning if they weren't already, you know? And so yeah. you wonder what, what lies ahead for Lena. And then he's not covering up the fact that he's weeping at the wedding, you know? Yeah. Um, so th there, that was a, a moment of perhaps really dangerous vulnerability on his part. And I think that, um, you know, how can you forecast that this is going to be how the first night of your week long wedding celebration is going to go, but this is sort of, Rainey's is prophecy fulfilled, right? You know, we're putting ourselves in danger. We're putting our son in right. danger. And yep. she probably couldn't have even told you. It'll happen on the first night. On the first night, right. we will be in extraordinary danger. But here we are in extraordinary danger. And you're absolutely right that during the ceremony that ensues, he's just, he's so, he's destroyed. And Rhaenyra even, even senses that you get the sense. I wonder what else you read into into Rhaenyra because she's she's such a more somber figure in the actual ceremony than she was throughout the entire party. It's like is she like sobered up in the cold light of day? How how did you read her reaction to everything? I think so. Yeah. You know, and there like, are oh, only shit, maybe I should have gone to Essos with Sir Kristen Cole. Maybe he wouldn't have beaten a man to death in this horrific yeah. hate crime. Yeah. I mean that violence is not her fault ultimately, but Right. Um, but like it, I think, you know, there is, it, there is a, a moment in any person's life when they're that age that they realize that they have an effect on the world around them, that they are not moving through just as these observers and sort of takers that they are creating ripples of their own. And, and here she is realizing that and also realizing that like 
she and Kristen are yes aren't going to have his you know sort of dream of running away they're certainly not now going to have the dream of he stays around and they just have a private affair you know for however long it's like now they are forever separated and that's one less protector one less potential ally um and i think yeah i think she grows up quite a bit uh in the wake of that really bloody incident that you know she was in some ways involved with again not to blame her for his you know unchecked merit you know anger but like you know right. men would literally beat someone to death at a wedding then go to go to therapy kind of thing uh-huh. but, uh, <laughs> yeah. but yeah but um you know i think that she's realizing like oh like i'm really in this now and what i decide to do the choices i make um yep. are gonna have like really immediate effect and and i think that's a that's a coming of age crucible of its own yeah absolutely um Sir Kristen, who who walks away from this, ready to uh, to take his own life, he goes out to the weirwood tree. He you know disarmors himself. He pulls out the dagger. He is about to about to do it. He is stopped by Queen Alicent. Uh, Alicent comes and and finds him. Um, do you get the sense maybe she has figured out a use for this man at this point? I don't know if she has a concrete use for him yet, but I think that she sees. The enemy of my enemy is my friend, you know, and I right. don't know that necessarily you could describe Kristen and Rhaenyra as enemies exactly yet, but like clearly they are apart. They have been torn apart. And, um, and I think Allison probably, you know, she's her father's daughter, um, sees some potential utility in that. He's also like a good at, good at fighting, obviously. And, you know, um, he's not from a noble house, but he worked his way up and, um, yeah, I think that like she'll take anyone uh, and he's, he, you know, and e- even if it's just to drive the knife into her friends, her former friend's side you know, that much more, twist right. the knife that much more. Um, so, yeah, I think that's a really striking and surprising little uh, scene there. And I, um, again, made me kind of that much more curious about where Allison's headed. Final scene of the episode, <laughs> final image is Viserys collapsing. He has been on the, you know, he's been teetering on the edge of it the entire episode. He's been bleeding out the nose in the lead up to this specific moment. Um, he he falls down. Everyone huddles over him and straight out of the departed, uh, a rat scurries across the screen uh, and is uh, is feasting on the blood that has that has fallen, that has been spilled on on this night. Um, a really, really grim em- ending to a, a very, very grim episode of House of the Dragon, as if there's another kind, though. Yes, exactly. <clears throat> um, you know, and if this if this is the end of young, um, young Rhaenyra, young Alicent, um, young uh, Lenor, even, um, I, I, I'm really curious to see, you know, if we jump forward in time, clearly they'll have to kind of do some reverse exposition about what happened in the ensuing years, you know, or, or however, however long it's going to be. Um, because this moment doesn't look like it's going to lead to a sort of peace ish for a while. It looks like things are about to fall apart all over again because like yeah. everyone's just like got their, their hands Worse on their swords ready to, you know, but yeah. so, but if, if there is a time jump like that was not, I would think that would imply that things don't immediately go to ruin. Um, so I, I, yeah, I'm curious to see how they kind of get around that. Um, that's a tricky narrative obstacle and I'm curious how they're going to do it. But I think that the episode, for me, uh, anyway, really did feel like it had something of maybe not on Game of Thrones, because typically a Game of Thrones finale can be a little quieter than this. But this on another show maybe had some season finale vibes to it. Yeah. Uh, that yeah. It, and I think I think you're right to mark that of, uh, you know, feeling like it's the end of something. 
Um, it certainly looks like it's the end of Viserys, um, but it looks like the end of a chapter of some kind that things have been um, in free fall for a long time on this show, really, from, from day dot. And every once in a while, a dragon swoops in and catches you and you're flying for a minute before you fall off again. And right now we leave this one, I think, falling without any real visible um, ledge to hang on to. Uh, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a pretty, you know, it's, it, le- it leaves me with a pit in my stomach and I know where it's going. Uh, so it's a, it's a, it's a compelling, it's a compelling moment in the story, I think for, uh, for the first season, for the freshman year of, uh, of this really, really big show for HBO. And I will be here for all the episodes coming. I don't have any more fancy film festivals Hooray! to go to, sadly. Well, so <laughs> I will be here till, knowing, till the bitter end. Knowing a little bit of uh, what I know about what your channel schedule was like, Richard. <laughs> yeah. Good for you. I'm, I'm thrilled to have you back. This was really fun for me getting to talk to you about this episode and catching up on everything that's been happening on House of the Dragon up to this point. Uh, and it's been great catching up with all of you out there listening to the podcast. Uh, we hope that you've been enjoying it. So that's going to do it for us on Still Watching this week. Of course, as a reminder, you can write in stillwatchingpod at gmail.com. We want to hear from you. If this is the end of an era of House of the Dragon, what do you think of uh, book one, as it were? What do you think of this first arc of the show? Where do you think we are moving into the second movement of the show? All of that feedback, we would love to hear from you. Stillwatchingpod at gmail.com. Richard, where can people find you? Anything you're working on that you want to plug? Well, I tweet at Rylas, R-I-L-A-W-S. Um, I have reviews and other things at VF.com, including uh, a bunch of reviews from uh, the Venice and Toronto Film Festival. So not exactly related to House of the Dragon, but um, you know, the other side of my job uh, can be easily found on VF.com. Amazing. I'm at Round Howard, wherever you can find me on the internet, including uh, right here, recapping House of the Dragon on VF.com every week. Also have uh, a big book heavy uh, article that is up on VF.com right now, talking about some of the stuff from the book, from the show uh, that differs from each other, stuff that's very similar in this specific episode uh, of episode five uh, that if you want to check out, that's VF.com, the House of the Dragon coverage there that you can investigate further uh before we close out want to give a big shout out to the great dave gonzalez who lights the way for us here on still watching behind the scenes makes it possible for these episodes of still watching to exist so big thanks to dave uh, and big thanks to all of you out there for listening we will be back next week talking about episode six of house of the dragon until next time everybody take care bye-bye You come to the New Yorker Radio Hour for conversations that go deeper with people you really want to hear from, whether it's Bruce Springsteen or Questlove or Olivia Rodrigo, Liz Cheney, or the godfather of artificial intelligence, Jeffrey Hinton, or some of my extraordinarily well-informed colleagues at The New Yorker. So join us every week on The New Yorker Radio Hour, wherever you listen to podcasts.